0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Jeremiah, had last week off with a missionary report, so uh, we've kind of left things hanging, haven't we? We destroyed Jerusalem in chapter 39, and uh, it's still destroyed in chapter 40. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 40, and uh, we got some details here that are slightly at odds with chapter 39, and so we ask ourselves, is this the same thing that's being described two different ways, or is it two different things? Two different events uh, in a sequence rather than a simultaneous thing. And uh, that's what uh, I've concluded as we reconcile these passages. And so we'll talk about it here this morning. Very similar to what we're doing in, uh, in uh, our 930 hour. We're comparing scripture to scripture. We're finding uh, the details that diverge and the details that converge. And we're putting them together in a harmony. And it's, uh, it's no different than anything else we do uh, when we study to show ourselves approved. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to humble us that we might receive the Word implanted that is able to save our souls. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning as objects of your grace, recipients of your grace. Father, just celebrating your grace. Here we are with a local church a pastor teacher, brothers and sisters, and every gift represented. Father, I thank you for the blessings that we have to assemble together, to receive instruction, to present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We call upon your faithfulness. Father, just so thankful that our study today does not depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. It depends on how faithful you are to teach us, to show us, to equip us and Father, when we consider how faithful you are, it's a good reminder that you are infinitely faithful. You're, and I just thank you so much for that. So bless our time of study. Open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Dealing with chapter 40. The word which came to Jeremiah the Lord from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, had released him... From Rama Well that's interesting. So if you were with us a couple weeks ago, uh, in reading th- through chapter 39, we saw the destruction of Jerusalem. We saw that finally, after the 18-month siege or thereabouts, that uh, the wall was pierced, the Babylonians came flooding in, the city falls. And in the process of that, this character, Nebu is a sign. In fact, he has a personal work assignment from Nebuchadnezzar himself that his mission is to go into the city and to locate and to rescue uh, Jeremiah. And he does so. He, he actually uh, engages in the command structure of the armed forces. He teams up with the commanding uh, generals of the, of the invasion. Uh, some of the details that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter 39, I'll show them again to you here this morning. And they secured the rescue of uh, Jeremiah in the city. And they released him into the custody of, of the governor Gedaliah, that's appointed the governor of the remnant that's left behind, and uh, and so that's kind of where we left it a couple weeks ago in uh, in chapter 39. Details are slightly different here, so let's let's read on. Um, what happens here is um, when he had been when he released him from Ramah, when he had taken him, that is when he Nebuzaradan had taken him Jeremiah. Bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who are being exiled to Babylon. And so details there diverge with the details that we find in chapter 39. There's no reference of the chains. There's no reference of being carried off to Ramah. Uh, As far as we know, in chapter 39, he's located in the courtyard of the guard. Uh, He's located where he was jailed and rescued and taken to Gedaliah's house and left there. In uh, safety in, uh, in Gedaliah's house. This is a, a different account. So how do we put them together? We'll talk about that. Now the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God promised this calamity against this place and the Lord has brought it on and done just as he promised because you uh, you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice. Therefore this thing has happened to you. But now behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. If you would prefer to come with me to Babylon, come along and I will look after you. But if you would prefer not to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look, the whole land is before you. Go wherever it seems good and right for you to go. Notice, not necessarily back to Jerusalem. All right. Notice, not necessarily back to Gedaliah in the house that's there. Um, you know, you almost get the idea of anywhere but there, right? And when he says, hey, the whole world is in front of you, go wherever you want to go. And as Jeremiah was still not going back, he said, go on back then to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the cities of Judah and stay with him among the people or else go anywhere it seems right for you to go. Keeps hinting at that, doesn't he? Um, So the captain of the bodyguard gave him a ration and a gift and let him go. So Jeremiah then went to Mizpah to get a liar, the son of Ahikam. The interim government was housed at Mizpah since uh, Jerusalem was such a such a wreck and uh, he stayed with him among the people who were left in the land. All right, so we'll stop there and get some details on this. Uh, You remember who was left in the land. Most of them were killed anyway, and the few that survived that had surrendered themselves, uh, most of them were put in chains and enslaved and taken off. I think there's a significant difference between the captives, Daniel and Ezekiel, those that went into captivity in 605 and 597, versus those that went into slavery in 586, uh, just because they were co-located in, in the Babylonian region, they did not have the same freedom and privileges and, and blessings that the exiles had. Um, and then the rabble that was left behind, the poorest of the land that was left behind, the, the homeless, the vagrants, the, the, uh, the unskilled, the, the, uh, these folks, that's who was left behind. And Gedaliah was appointed over them uh, to uh, be their governor, to to answer to the Babylonians as a uh, vassal, as a regent, we call it. And uh, and so Jeremiah is going to identify with him and stand at his right hand and serve him in this uh, prophetic capacity. So details on this, I find it's interesting. Of course, they do conflate. Uh, Although previously delivered to protective custody... Jeremiah is bound in chains and taken to Ramah, all right? Now, that appears to be a contradiction, but I think they can occur in a sequence and not be excessively problematic. Uh, People do change their minds, and anytime you're dealing with an army or you're dealing with a bureaucracy, not every branch speaks to every other branch. And then also, sometimes there are other motivations at work, and sometimes subsequent events unfold in ways that... uh, uh, we weren't exactly anticipating. And so I view these as a sequence. I don't view these as as, as uh, parallel. I don't view these as two different chapters describing the same event. I think the first rescue happened the way it was described in chapter uh, 39. And then the second rescue, if you can call it that, the second release happened uh, the way it's described here in chapter 40. And so what happened in the meantime? What happened between the two chapters? Why, if a guy is given a release... If a guy has a get-out-of-destruction free card, <laughs> right, you know, like a get-out-of-jail free card, uh, Jeremiah had a get-out-of-Jerusalem-destruction free card, and he was personally rescued on the orders of Nebuchadnezzar. So you think, well, that's, that's the end of story, then. Who's going to thwart that? Well, we see somebody did. Somebody tried, all right, either Nebuchadnezzar himself or somebody working on his behalf so that Nebuchadnezzar can appear to be a good guy again the second time over, okay, and I find this interesting. So, previously delivered to productive custody, yet in this chapter, he is bound in chains and taken to Ramah. And that's the first part of verse 1 here of chapter 40. Um, it's, and, and a prophetic revelation came to him in these circumstances. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after. And I think the plain reading is, well, the plain reading is Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah. So Nebuzaradan is the is the agent of the release, but also I think he's the agent of the capture. When he the nearest antecedent is still Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard. He had taken him bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Now, Intentional, unintentional, could be an accident, you know, a fog of war, things happen that aren't intended to happen. You know, there's supposed to be a a block that's marked as safe. You know, she hung the red string in the window, so we're going to save that house when we destroy all of Jericho. And uh, we're going to send agents in to rescue Rahab the harlot and her family. Um, Those kind of things happen in war, and then also mistakes happen in times of war. And sometimes people that are slated for rescue actually get you know, a bomb dropped on them, some kind of cruise missile hits, or, 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 uh, or they get rearrested, put in chains, and taken elsewhere. And sometimes it's because there are competing political interests. And uh, that clearly that's going to be the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar himself has designs for the throne. He himself is a brother-in-law of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And so he has a chance to marry into the family. He has a chance to advance himself politically. And this may be a play for that. Uh, when, when all is said and done, some interpreters conflate chapter thirty-nine and chapter forty. In other words, they put them together as differing accounts of the same event. Um, I, I reject that. I don't believe they're differing accounts of the same event because the differences are too too much. You know, is uh, bound in chains and hauled off to Rama is entirely different from what's described in chapter thirty-nine where he's rescued from the, the courtyard of the guard and then sent to um, sent to Gedaliah's house. So I view these chapters as differing accounts of differing events. Differing accounts of differing events. Who bound Jeremiah and took him to Ramah and why? I think it was Nebuzaradan himself. And here's some interesting differences too, by the way. I find it noteworthy. Remember, I commented a couple weeks ago in chapter 39... Nebuchadnezzar publicly fulfilled his orders. He publicly fulfilled those orders, and he made sure that he had witnesses to this effect. He went overboard to invite other people to participate with him in this mission. And so he publicly fulfilled his orders from Nebuchadnezzar with the cooperation of the army's command structure. And just briefly, I can glance back. I don't even have to flip. It's right there. on chapter 39, verse 13. Working on the orders from Nebuchadnezzar in verses 11 and 12. Notice, when he gets his orders from Nebuchadnezzar, he's told to take Jeremiah, look after him, do nothing harmful to him. (laughs) Okay? I think chains and a trip to Rama would would violate that. Uh, Do nothing harmful to him, but rather deal with him just as he tells you. Uh, that's, That's comprehensive. He has to rescue Jeremiah and do whatever Jeremiah tells him to do. So, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, sent word. I'm reading from chapter 39 and verse 13 now. Along with, and look who he ropes into this ne, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rab and Nergal Sarizer, the Rab Mag, and all the leading of officers of the king of Babylon. So, when he uh, accomplishes this mission and serves to rescue Jeremiah inside the city, he's got all of these witnesses. Specifically, leading military officers, the Rab Saris and the Rab Mag. And they are eyewitnesses to how good and faithful (laughs) Nebuzaradan is. He did what he was told to do. He rescued Jeremiah. Mission accomplished. Okay. Now, chapter 40 seems to be something else. Something else is happening here. And Nebuzaradan is not including all those other people. I think this is under the table. I think this is more. uh, uh, underhanded. I think it's a rogue operation. And I, I call it that. This chapter now, chapter 40, appears to be a private rogue operation by Nebuchadnezzar in an effort to place Jeremiah under his allegiance. And you'll notice this. This is the language of a suzerain vassal. This is the language of a client uh, in, in the Roman system when you had to have a, a patron. And under the patrician system, there you have a patron and a client of that patron. And uh, you'll note, I read it already, but verse 4 of chapter 40, Behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. And so if, as I suspect, yeah, maybe Nebuzeradan uh, used intermediaries, he used deniable sources to have him arrested and hauled off. So now he can show up in Ramah as a hero, rescue Jeremiah for a second time, and then say, oh, by the way, by the way, that uh, that house custody didn't seem to work out too well, did it? Don't think Nebuchadnezzar is really on your side, but I'll take care of you. Tell you what, come with me to Babylon. You'll be my agent. I'll be your patron. Okay? Together we can rule the galaxy. Okay? As, you know, maybe Darth Vader might say to Luke. Okay? Because guess what? He wants to become the new emperor. And in history we 're told that he does become the new emperor after he assassinates the one that comes in between, okay, so Nebuchadnezzar dies, his son takes the throne, and then he gets assassinated and now this this rascal is in a position in any event why would he want why would he want Jeremiah on his side? Any ideas on that? any thoughts on that because Nebuchadnezzar's got Daniel on his side, <laughs> okay. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to go take a throne and the guy you're trying to take has a prophet standing by him, well, let me go get one of those. Okay. Yeah. Daniel, the prophet of Yahweh. Okay. I'll go get a prophet of Yahweh. We'll, we'll fight fire with fire. Okay. Just an idea. I'm yeah. laying out some concepts and some theories here. I can't prove it from the scriptures. Just want you to think about it. But clearly somebody put him in chains and carried him to Rama, And then Nebuchadnezzar shows up and says, hey, I'm your hero come with me. It's, it's clearly a job offer. It's clearly a, 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 a enticement to great things down the road. And Jeremiah, interestingly enough, stands there. He doesn't say a thing. doesn't go anywhere. He stands there. I love that in verse 5. Jeremiah just stood there, and he was still not going back. You know? And I wonder, too, sometimes, <laughs> how do these prophets operate? And uh, if if you're a prophet of the Lord and you're accustomed to God giving you briefings and you, you know what to say and to whom, specifically it is the word which came to Jeremiah on this day. He was in an, in an ecstatic experience receiving divine revelation. And so maybe Yahweh just said, all right, stand there, wait. And uh, oftentimes you can learn a lot by not saying anything. Just standing there looking at the guy. And then he finally gives in and says, all right, fine. Go to Jerusalem. Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. All right? And just giving up on the whole process. I find that uh, interesting as well. So this, uh, I think, I don't see these other officers involved. I don't see the Rab Mag or the Rab Saris, These other characters are not a feature. Here, this appears to be a, a, a scheme entirely brought about by Nebuzaradan, as far as that goes, all right, so uh, we get through that in verse six. Jeremiah went to Mizpah to get Eliah, the son of Ahakam, and stayed with him among the people who were left in the land, and I already described them chapter thirty nine described them they were not uh they were not uh, the uh the prime population, to say the least, okay, and they're described in kind of insulting terms the poorest people who had nothing, the absolute indigent of, uh, of the land who had nothing whatsoever. They get to remain there and uh, live amongst the, uh, the ruins of what was left behind. All right, then what starts to happen in verses seven and following, all the commanders of the forces that were in the field, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam over the land and that he had put him in charge of the men, women, and children, those uh, of the poorest of the land who had not been exiled to Babylon. So they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, along with, and now here's a list of characters. Again, more tough names to pronounce. Well, Ishmael's is easy. Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, Johanan and and okay, Johanan and Jonathan, uh, John and Jonathan, the sons of Kareah. And Sariah, the son of uh, Tehumath, as well as the sons of Ephi, the Netophathite, whoever they were. And Jezaniah, the son of Macathite, the Maccathite. Alright. Those guys. Both they and their men. Alright. I practiced, but I'm not doing well today. So here's this crowd. And it's interesting, these forces now it's interesting when 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 God when when certain things are happening when certain danger passes who then comes crawling out from under their rock or coming out from the you know wherever all right and this is what we see happening here renegades and refugees the rest of this chapter is about renegades and refugees and it's kind of interesting since we're living in times that we see all these Renegades and refugees that are flooding into Europe, for example, uh, from the Middle East or flooding from North Africa or being brought to the States, actually, and settled here. Renegades and refugees and which are which? <laughs> Can you tell? Can anybody tell? All right. Um, why are they leaving where they were? Why were they there in the first place? And why are they here? What do they want now? And, uh, and, and aspects there. So the rest of uh, what we'll deal with here. I think it's interesting. Verses 7 through 12 kind of describes it. And then uh, and then um, word comes of an assassination attempt in uh, verses 13 and following. So uh, we've got to take these uh, details uh, step by step here also. Uh, but let's talk about commanders of the forces that were in the field. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Where you been? <laughs> you know. We've been defending Jerusalem for the last 18 months. Where were you guys? Okay. Now, not faulting them, okay, because some of this is by design. And I think that there's two different groups of forces that are mentioned here. The vocabulary is different. And we've got to talk about these guys because we have regular army military forces in verse 7. And then we have these mercenary captains in verse 8. And um, understanding how these units were formed in the ancient world, I think is, is, is interesting and, and important. Uh, so in verse 7, we're talking about forces in the field. What are we talking about? Forces in the field. Okay? These were mobile guerrilla units designed to conduct raids and ambushes against the invading Babylonians. When you decide that you're going to defend a city and you're going to endure a siege, you've got to decide how many soldiers you need to man the walls and to, you know, to effectively operate in the siege. You need sufficient, but not too many. Why is that? Because they got to eat. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have too many. You have too many defenders when that's the food runs out faster. Okay. And so you, 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 you defend with what you can, with what you need and then you also can field these uh, mobile units. You field these forces, and they're going to do hit-and-run tactics. They're going to do raids on supply lines, which is great, because you can take food away from the Babylonians, and you also can eat. <laughs> okay. uh, all of these invading Babylonians are coming, and they've got a long supply line to, to resupply themselves. And uh, So if you can hit those, those uh, units, all the better. Raids and ambushes against the invading Babylonians, okay? But it's, all, it's also tough duty because, I mean, you're, you're constantly on the move. You're constantly camping. You're constantly attacking and then running away from the counterattack and trying to avoid the, the counterattack that comes because there's a whole lot more of them than there are of you. Uh, and so it's uh, kind of an exciting thing. And that's what's described here. Commanders of the forces. They were in the field, they and their men. Now this is a different description than what we have in eight and following. So we start there. Now they heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam over the land. Now this is weeks later, months later. It was a, it's, a, it's not a, you know, they didn't destroy Jerusalem on Tuesday and leave on Wednesday. Okay, it takes time. And uh, at whatever point then that the main Babylonian army moved out, when Gedaliah begins his civilian administration here of the of the remnant, um, that's when these guys start to uh start to make their appearance. And so um so they they appear. And it says um uh they came in verse eight to Gedaliah at Mizpah. They came to him. And so here is a here is reporting in. Here is now a a a submission in a sense. But it's not automatic. They don't work for Gedaliah, right? Who commissioned them? They work for Zedekiah. They work for the, the real, I mean, they work for the king. Now, well, do they submit to this Babylonian appointed governor or not? And if they do, what does he promise them? What does he guarantee them? Now, beyond that, we have along with. So now we have forces that are entirely separated. And this would include Ishmael. And uh, John and Jonathan, okay, the Hebrew Yohanan is where we get the Greek word John. And so we got a lot of Johns in the New Testament, James and John, the sons of thunder. We got a lot of Johns and the, John the Baptist, and there's a lot of Johns, John called Mark. Um, John's really a great Greek name, and we find it a lot in the New Testament. We don't find too many Yohanans in the Old Testament, but here's one. And his brother, Jonathan. Jonathan. And uh, interesting, they're the tandem there of of, of Jonathan and uh, and, y- and John, but uh, and then the rest of these guys. Who are these guys? Because each of these appears to be a captain of some sort. They and they have men. Every one of these leaders has men, because once they list all these dudes, then it says they and their men. So each one of these is an is an independent mercenary captain, and and. I conclude this. Other people conclude this. And it's normal. It's normal. David himself operated this way. He served the the Philistines for a time as a mercenary captain when he was a renegade from King Saul. And so it's very common. There were entire nations that that majored in this, that supplied auxiliary troops. Anytime there was a war, you could count on Thracians or some other groups to just jump in there and say, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll work for you. Okay. And sometimes on both sides depending on who was paying and how. So mercenary captains volunteered as auxiliary units, sometimes on both sides, sometimes on behalf of neighboring nations, okay? It wouldn't be the same mercenary captain on both sides, but it could very easily be, you know, a a Thracian captain on this side and another Thracian captain on this side or a Philistine captain or, or what have you. Sometimes on behalf of neighboring nations, and that seems to be what's happening here. What we learn is that one of these guys is actually an agent of the Ammonites. And uh, that's going to become evident. Uh, I say chapter 40 and verse 8, but we're going to have a clue here. When when the assassination warning comes in, let me skip down ahead a little bit here. Down to verse 14, Yohanan is going to uh, spill the beans. Yohanan pulls uh, Gedaliah aside and says, hey, by the way, are you well aware that Balas, the king of the sons of Ammon, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? (laughs) You know, all of us mercenary captains are really happy to be here, uh, but one of us is, you're not going to be happy to have him here with us, okay? Because he's actually under commission to assassinate you from the king of the Ammonites. Balas has put out a contract on your life. And uh, there it is. Sadly, um, Gedaliah doesn't believe it. And uh, yeah, he'll pay the price for that. So, mercenary captains, they volunteered. You can read about this. Josephus or other authors will talk about this in the ancient world. You can talk about auxiliary units. And it paid well if you lived long enough. It paid very well. And uh, for the survivors, uh, they could take the whole reward and even divide up the the loot that the non-survivors failed to get paid with, um, and, uh, and things there. Now, why does a neighboring country, why do the Ammonites care? Why would the Ammonites hire some mercenary bands and send them over here to Judah? Well, you cause enough mistress, uh, mistress mischief, you cause enough mischief in the neighboring area, and you keep the attention there. We, we want more battles in Judah, and we don't want the Babylonians coming to the Ammonites, right? And so oftentimes neighboring nations were very motivated to keep supplying auxiliary troops, keep supplying uh, mercenary bands, roving bands. And, and the Babylonians did the same thing. When, uh, when, when, they, were, when they were more focused on Egypt and, and Tyre, they sent bands of Chaldeans and, and other groups, Sabaeans, they sent other groups uh, roving bands. They were hired mercenaries, Everybody did it. So uh, here's the description of these guys. And one of them is, uh, is not a good guy. Now, let's look at verses 9 and 10 here. So Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, the son of Shaphan. And we always get that three-generation genealogy with him. It's, it's neat. okay? It's, it's a neat family heritage. He's the son of a believing father and a believing grandfather. And you think, here's somebody that's really got it together. Here's somebody that knows doctrine, he's saved, he's going to serve the Lord. No, not so much. All right. You know, it's like Timothy, a believing mother and a believing grandmother. And Paul had great expectations for Timothy. Well, here's, uh, here's uh, Gedaliah with a believing father and a believing grandfather. Heroes. And now it's his turn. Is he going to serve the purpose of God in his generation? No, sadly. Um, the sadness of this. All right. So Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and to their men. Why is he taking an oath? What's what's this about? He swore to them. He places himself under a vow, under a covenant, a berith. All right. He takes a vow. He takes an oath. And this is this is normal when a lord is accepting the servitude of of uh, these forces but they're going to render him service but he renders them an obligation also that's the nature of a suzerain vassal type arrangement here so he swore to them and to their men saying do not be afraid of serving the chaldeans stay in the land and serve the king of Babylon, that it may go well with you now as for me behold i'm going to stay at mizpah to stand for you before the Chaldeans who come to us, and there's going to be some minions. There's going to be some agents that are sent. There's going to be some ambassadors. There'll be some tax collectors. There's going to be some some uh some Babylonians. are going to keep tabs on us. But I will represent you. I am the appointed governor here. But as for you, gather in wine and summer fruit and oil. Put them in your storage vessels. Live in your cities that you have taken over ah (laughs) now we know what they were doing okay after the babylonians departed they were they were doing some stuff before they showed up at Gedaliah's front door they took over some cities they staked out some claims this mercenary band maybe one of them went and grabbed bethel another one went and grabbed shechem another one went and grabbed whatever lakish they went and grabbed whatever and so here's a, a band under a captain and they've staked out a city. And uh, now that they, uh, they, they're holding it, now they're going to go deal with Gedaliah. And so this is what they come to. Say, all right, keep those cities where you are, but there's work to be done. We need to bring in this harvest. We need, to, if we're not going to starve in the winter, we have got to get what we can get. And so he puts them to work so this is part of the, uh, the details of what we're seeing here. These roving bands were prepared to submit to Nebuchadnezzar via Gedaliah's agency. And Gedaliah was prepared to grant them the cities they had occupied. Prepared to grant them the cities they had occupied. Now this is really, it's a two-way street. It's a grand bargain. Because ultimately, I mean... Yeah, they've been raiding the Babylonians. I, you know, Nebuchadnezzar would be just as happy to hang them, you know, just capture them and, and kill <clears> them. <throat> so this bargain here, Gedaliah is going to bring them under his umbrella, under his protection. He is the appointed governor. He can, uh, he can fade the heat, if, it, if you will, related to any suspicions the Babylonians might have. Hey, who are those guys? Who are those guys occupying Bethel? Who are those guys occupying Shechem? Hey, who are those guys? Oh, they're with us. They were here all along. Yeah. Oh no no no. They were not mercenary bands. Oh no no no. They they weren't raiding your supply lines. <laughs> no no no. Different guys. They're they're some of the the poor. They're some of the vagrants. They're some of the the destitute. They had nothing. Okay. And Gedaliah is prepared to represent them on that basis. And we see the, the bargain here. So um, I'm going to stay here at Mizpah. This is headquarters for Occupied Judah. And uh, you guys go back to the cities that you have taken over. And he starts to assign them in, in uh, their duties there to gather in whatever they can. Wine, summer fruit, oil. There's probably not a lot left anyway after the siege. The Babylonians would have stripped a lot of it themselves. Now, if some of this seems odd to you, it's not the only place in the Bible that happens. I would reference for you this morning, 1 Samuel 11. We can grab that here. 1 Samuel 11. All right. And it is, whenever, whenever a war is done and the, the chaos subsides and then the the, the dust settles, the civilians start creeping out, and, and you've got to start to administer occupied territory. You've got to start to govern through a, a provisional way in an occupied authority type of, type of structure. We did this in Kuwait City when when uh, the, I was there in 1990. This was the, uh, the first Gulf War, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and we were the MPs that uh, provided the only law that there was in Kuwait City. After we pushed the the uh, Iraqis out of there, and so we had curfew at night, and uh, we had block by block we were releasing regions of the of the city to civilian administration all right uh first Samuel eleven uh, here's just another example of this: Saul and the ammonites uh, now Nehash the uh, Ammonite came up and besieged Jabeth Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, or Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. <laughs> okay, so a similar language saying, all right, right, uh, we'll, we'll go to your side. We'll make this happen. What, uh, what, will you, uh, what will you do for us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you Thus, I will make it a reproach on all Israel. Ooh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a fun price. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they're going to they're gonna join the left eye gang or whatever that would, ends up being. And, uh, wow. So, I mean, seriously, do you mean this or not? <laughs> Are you serious about this or not? Are you willing to pay this price? Plus, we'll know who you are afterwards. (laughs) If you you turn traitor, we can hunt you down. Um, So the elders of Jabesh said to him, Well, we've got to talk about this. (laughs) Uh, Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. (laughs) Okay? And by the way, we laugh at this, but this is normal. This is not an insult in any respect. Say, we need seven days, we might find other allies. Okay, they may not demand we gouge out our eyes. Maybe they have a, they have a cheaper price. Um, this is actually normal routine for uh, setting up the liege, uh the, the the patron and and client relationship. So the messengers came to Gibeon of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept, because the Jews had no faith at all. They're like, wow, you guys got a bum deal. We can't beat that, you know sorry for your eyes. (laughs) And behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen. This is, you know, Saul wasn't always a loser. Saul in his younger days, was a hero. He was, he was a man of faith coming in from the field behind the oxen. He said, what is the matter with the people? (laughs) Why are they weeping? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. So the spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. You know, they didn't know how to handle Saul. Was he a judge? Was he a prophet? They would see the Spirit come upon him and they didn't know. Is Saul also among the prophets? They didn't know. Or is he among the judges? Is he like Samson here? What's going to happen? And it came mightily upon him when he heard these words. He became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell on the people and they came out as one man. Look at that. You put aside all your party bickering, you put aside, you come out as one man. You come out like-minded, intent on one purpose. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. And what do you have? You have a believing king, or someone that's very soon going to be crowned the first king of Israel. And he's got a prophet at his right hand. He's got Samuel. So he numbered them in Bezac, and the sons of Israel were 300,000. The men of Judah were 30,000. We've got to work with those numbers, I think. There's number issues in every Hebrew manuscript. And they... uh, said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead. All right. We've got a response. This is like General, what's his name, saying nuts at the siege of Bastogne. You know, the Germans demanded the surrender of Bastogne and the Americans said nuts. And because uh, Patton was on the way and they relieved the the siege of Bastogne. But um, so here's the response. And um Tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And so the next morning Saul put the people in three companies that came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watched and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So people said to Samuel, hey, who is this guy? <laughs> who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the man that we may put them to death. Anyway, this is this is kind of the stuff that leads into Saul becoming the first king. It's a fun story. But anyway, so we have this. And so here's a surrender demand. Here's an offer to submit. Here's an offer to become a vassal. is going to cost them the right eye. All right. So when we get back to Jeremiah 40 and we realize, all right, here come these mercenary captains. Here come these, uh, these renegade units. Well, they may not submit to Gedaliah. They're going to find out what his terms are. And if he can't offer them good enough terms, they may go elsewhere. They may return to Ammon. They may go to the Philistines. They may go to Egypt. Who knows? Maybe even Nebuchadnezzar might offer them something if they play it right. Okay? So it's an interesting aspect of uh, politics in the ancient world. Okay? You always improve your political stand when you got troops. <laughs> okay? That's called the... Uh, what's that called? the? Oh, there's a term for it negotiation of the sword or something. Anyway, you bring, you bring an army with you and you have some good political negotiations. After this, then the civilians start creeping out. The real refugees, the civilian populace in verses 11 and 12. A civilian population of refugees returned from Moab, Ammon, and Edom in a foreshadowing of Israel's future tribulation. And this is fun to study as well, not only historically what happened in the 6th century when Babylon left the place ravaged, but what's going to happen in the tribulation? What's going to happen in the end times? Because whatever, whatever devastation Nebuchadnezzar left behind him, Antichrist leaves behind a whole lot more. And there were refugees in the tribulation, and what do they come out of? The very same territory that we see here. And it's interesting to me to see a foreshadowing of this. So verse 11 says, Likewise also, all the Jews who were in Moab and among the sons of Ammon and in Edom. Okay, remember Moab and Ammon were the sons of Lot. And so we have nations that descend from Abraham's nephew. And then we have Edom uh, that descended from Ishmael, Abraham's son that was not Isaac. Okay, (laughs) Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael. And so Ishmael is Edom. And so we have yeah, they're Gentiles, but they're close, okay? They're not Jews, but they're the, the, the most Jewish of all the Gentiles out there. Because again, their kinship with Lot and their kinship with, with Ishmael, the son of Abraham. And, uh, and this was a, a neighboring territory, neighboring geography, where civilians were able to flee, and they did. And so uh, we have Moab, Ammon, Edom, and who were in all the other countries. They heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant for Judah and that he had appointed over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, the son of Shaphan. Then all the Jews returned from the places to which they had been driven away and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah and gathered in wine and summer fruit and great abundance. And so they immediately set to work uh, doing what it was that he told those mercenary bands to start doing. And uh, get busy about trying to survive the uh, the coming winter. All right, and so uh, the civilian population returns. And descriptions in the scripture and history and likewise, any if you're going to fight a war, fight it in somebody else's land, not your own. All right, because the rebuilding in your own land is is ferocious, and uh, even the winner of a war, if it's fought on your land. The, the rebuilding of it is ferocious in uh in those aspects. I mean you talk about Germany's rebuilding after World War II, you can talk about England's rebuilding after World War II. Uh you know, one won, one, one lost, but both countries were just devastated in uh in the process. All right, now some aspects on this. Let's peek ahead here to chapter forty eight. Jeremiah forty eight. And uh, we have a chapter here where um, Jeremiah, the prophet to the Gentiles, is preaching a a message to Moab. And in the context of this, get all the way down to verse 47, the end of the chapter. So there's a lot of woe. Uh, Flame has devoured the forehead of Moab, the scalps of the riotous revelers, (laughs) Woe to you, Moab! The people of Hamash have perished. Your sons have been taken away captive. Your daughters into captivity. Yet, notice there's a yet. Yet, I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Why in the world does a pagan nation like Moab have a future promise? Say, it boggles the mind, doesn't it? Israel has millennial destinies and promises. Why does this Gentile nation Have a future remnant promised to them. See, I think it's because they're descendants of Lot, and Abraham blessed Lot. Abraham gave a subdivision of his land grant to Lot. He said, Choose which land you want, I'll take this other part. And and God honors that. That's staggering. Thus far, the judgment on Moab. You get to chapter 49, and now we have concerning the sons of Ammon. And uh, more judgment, more wrath, more destruction. It's not a happy message. But afterwards, look at verse 7. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the sons of Ammon, declares the Lord. So they have a promised remnant. See, the United States of America does not have a promised remnant. Israel has an eternal destiny. Moab and Ammon at least have a millennial destiny. And it's curious how this all comes together. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 41. Daniel. I love this chapter. Daniel 11. You read Daniel 11. You can teach this to children. You can teach this to adults. You can teach this to Ukrainians. I'm going to Ukraine. I'm going to teach this. I taught it five times now in Ukraine. I love teaching. It. It's a favorite chapter because we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Right? It's like watching a, a tennis match at Wimbledon or somewhere, right? It's, it's, just, your head's going back and forth, left, right, left, right. King of the north, king of the south, king of the north, king of the south, king of the south, king of the north, king of the south, king of the north. Then all of a sudden, tennis match ends. And, you're, and it's like you get smacked upside the head. And um, in verse 36, all of a sudden, then the king will do as he pleases. <laughs> right? Well, where'd that come from? Just out of nowhere, out of out of the blue, and we have a, a, a prophetic shift here. We have a break in the in the syntax, in the structure of the passage, and we realize there's something big happening here because it's no longer. You, you, is it north or south? What is it? Neither. Okay, and it, it just hits you in a powerful way. Then the king. This is Antichrist, the future emperor of uh, the tribulation. All right? The king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. And this is one of the deepest passages, one of the great developments of Antichrist that we have. We combine this with Revelation and, and Second Thessalonians. We combine this with so much else. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9. We uh, This chapter is is key. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. And boy, that gets interpreted in different ways. Um, or for the desire of women. A lot of jokes come out of that. That's why we know Bill Clinton's not Antichrist. Because the <laughs> desire... Of, well, and there's more to it than that. That's not just... Strictly speaking desire of women is the seed of the woman promised to Eve. The desire of women is to birth the Messiah. The desire of women is its a reference to the coming of the Christ. And he totally rejects anything related to God's promised Messiah. He takes Messiah's place actually. Magnifies himself. Nor will he show regard for any other God for he will magnify himself above them all. And instead he will honor a God of fortress. See, might makes right. A God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasure. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a prize. See, he goes from being a regional empire. The revived Roman Empire is regional. Ten toes, ten uh, kingdoms that make up the regional revived Roman Empire. But then it goes global. And part of this is the alliance that he forms to do this. But then notice, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. So we realize this king, this Antichrist, is neither king of the north, nor king of the south, because both of those hate him. Both of those are going to attack him in during the tribulation. Okay? It's kind of amusing to me how Satan magnifies his antichrist beast as this great hero, man of the year, white horse rider, the, the man who finally brings peace to the earth until the king of the north, king of the south, spoil that whole phony, uh, you know, fake news peace agenda that uh, that Satan couldn't deliver anyway. So, what happens then? He counterattacks and he whoops them both. And, um, but notice in verse 41, he will also enter the beautiful land. This is what brings him into the land of Israel. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. And wouldn't you know it? Which lands get rescued out of his hand? Which ones are delivered from Antichrist? The ones where the Jewish refugees are hiding. The ones where the remnant is being preserved the ones that were prophetically anticipated in Jeremiah. These will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost are the sons of Ammon. And that's what we see foreshadowed today in Jeremiah chapter 40. It's beautiful to see how these things come together. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. That detail is important if you're going to not get confused with Ezekiel, okay? um, Because the Libyans and Ethiopians are on one side here, they're on a different side in in Ezekiel. All right. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. Don't you hate that? And uh, you might imagine... The Euphrates River is going to get dried up and 200 million demon-possessed soldiers are on their way. (laughs) That's not a good thing. Rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his tents in the royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. That's how chapter 11 comes to an end, and that introduces Michael, archangel, and the rescue of Israel, and everything that finishes out the book of Daniel there in Daniel chapter 12. So, when we're looking at today, at the fall of Jerusalem in 586, what we're dealing with here, after the, the Babylonians depart, we have a remnant, we have the fact that these territories, Ammon, Moab, Egypt, uh, Edom, these regions had become a hiding place, had become a refuge, in, in, a, in a foreshadowing of what will happen eschatologically, what has been guaranteed to happen during uh, Antichrist's endeavor and, and att- attempt to uh, exterminate the Jewish people. All right. Back to chapter 40. And then the warning. Yohanan tries to warn Gedaliah that uh, one of these mercenary captives uh, captains is uh, not to be trusted. All right, and he doesn't believe him. So verses thirteen through sixteen, Gedaliah is warned of an assassination attempt. So uh, we read here, now Johanan the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were in the field came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And so uh, of all the mercenary captains, it's interesting, it includes Johanan by name, and then these regular army commanders of the forces that were in the field. All right. Came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, are you well aware that Balas?" the king of the sons of Ammon, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life. Are you well aware? And why wouldn't he be? I mean, you're talking about somebody that uh, should be impervious to all assassination attempts. You ought to have this guy who is the appointed governor with Jeremiah at his right hand. Oh, but wait a minute, where's Jeremiah? Is he even listening to Jeremiah? And it's interesting to me. So here comes this report. Are you well aware? What I would like to read, and I don't because it's not here, (laughs) but after this question gets posed, you know, are you well aware of this? I'd like to read in the last part of verse 14. So Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, turned to the prophet Jeremiah and inquired of the Lord and said, tell me, Lord, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) Right? And yet inquiring of Jeremiah is not mentioned. It's not in the picture. Not at all even considered. You know, and and this ultimately is is the failure so many times in the Old Testament. Joshua failed this way. Remember when the Gibeonites showed up and they acted like they were foreigners from far distance? And they said, hey, you know, we want to serve you. We came from you know, a land far, far away, and we're going to serve you. And Joshua goes, oh, okay, sounds good. And he never bothered to inquire of the Lord either. See, here's a clue. Stop and pray about it, okay? Don't just jump to a decision. Ask. And if you've got a prophet on staff, ask him, okay? Inquire of the Lord. Jeremiah hasn't been wrong yet in everything that he's uh, preached and everything he's proclaimed. Everything happens when he says, you know, thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen. And to me, it's curious why Gedaliah blows it here when everything was, seemed to be in his favor. So um, Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, did not believe him. Nope, don't believe him. Don't believe him. And um, well, there you have it. And uh, in in a lot of ways, A passage like this might speak to us in terms of our evangelism. We're preaching the gospel and we want people to believe. We want people to believe what we're saying. We want people to believe the gospel. We want people to believe for eternal life. But what happens if they're not persuaded? You cannot, pastuo, if you're never pathod. If you're never persuaded, you cannot believe. It takes that persuasion. You have to place your faith in what you are persuaded is the viable object of your faith. It's curious to me. Now, Balas, the Ammonite king, had ordered the assassination of Gedaliah. And um, it happens. All right. In fact, it happens uh, in in the will of God. It happens. And when you study the laws of the divine establishment... It's, uh, it's not volition. Any man can kill anybody he wants to. It's not marriage. Any husband can kill any wife he's not happy with. No. It's not family. Any parent can kill any child they're not happy with. No. It's uh, He needs to go to the gates and get the elders involved, right? It is the government. It is the fourth law of divine establishment. It's civil authority. So we have a civil authority over the military. And so the sword is given to Caesar. Sword is given to the king. The king bears the sword. And so the king executes justice. The king executes death. And maybe it's a judicial death. Maybe it's a military death if the king has declared war. Maybe it's an espionage assassination. Those are often cheaper than war. And they can keep a war from happening. If you kill the right guy at the right time, you can stop a war. So Balas, the Ammonite king, ordered the assassination of Gedaliah. And and it happens a lot in the Old Testament. You get different people saying, hey, I'll go kill him for you. Hey, I'll go kill him for you. (laughs) And sometimes the king would say, okay. Or he'd say, no. Okay. Or would you get out of here? You're bugging me. You know, James and John said, hey, let's call down fire and, and blast this Samaritan village. And Jesus, the king, said, what am I going to do with you guys? <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, kings can order, and you've got your own double O agent that can execute the uh, license to kill command that you get from your, from your uh, government. So Johanan requests the governor's sanction to eliminate the assassin. But Gedaliah rejects him as a liar. See, so here's what happens here. Johanan, uh, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah. So the, the warning of the assassination was with everybody else around. Then he comes back privately and says, hey, you said you didn't believe me, but come on. If you want, you know, so we'll take care of it. Let me go and kill Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah. Not a man will know. In fact, even better, they'll think you didn't do it. Because in the full view of all these other guys, you said no. You said he didn't believe it. Why uh, should he take your life so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah be perished? See, if the, if the Jews execute the appointed governor, then it's game over. Nebuchadnezzar sends the, the stormtroopers back and they just obliterate everybody left. Okay? And uh, that's the way it works. But the son of Ahikam said to Yohanan, the son of Korea, do not do this thing. You are telling me a lie about Ishmael. Whatever the case. Why why was he so attached to this guy? Who knows? But uh, rejected him as a liar. Now, uh, almost out of time, I encourage you, do some research on this. Read about Shaphan, the grandfather. He was a great guy. Um, He read the law when it was found in King Josiah's day, when the law was discovered in the temple. Shaphan was a great hero in that chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 10. Also, the son of Shaphan, the father of Gedaliah, was Ahikam. And Ahikam uh, saved Jeremiah's life back in chapter 26. Ahikam stepped forward and delivered Jeremiah from his own assassination attempt there. We saw that a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 26. And so now, Gedaliah has a chance to serve the purpose of God in his generation. And that's a phrase that comes out of Acts 13, verse 36. All right? Each one of us, you and me, we must serve the purpose of God in our generation. And maybe our parents, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Okay? Maybe they were doctrinal believers. Maybe they were whatever. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they weren't even saved. All right? Whatever the case. If we had every advantage or we had no advantage whatsoever, we in our generation are expected to serve the purpose of God the way that He has called us to do here in the, in the local church. And so here we are. I encourage you to, uh, to do this. I think, um, let me just grab that one and then we'll dismiss. <clears throat> I'm running out of time, running out of voice. So you'll have to do 2 Kings and Jeremiah's homework. But Acts chapter 13, the whole point is that the, um, the prophecy related to the Christ did not apply to David. When God said in Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's with reference to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. This is a prophecy of, the, of, the, of, of Easter, a prom- prophecy that the Christ would rise again. And he proves it. He says, you know what? It doesn't apply to David. David's dead and he's still dead. It says there, uh, uh, David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, not through David, through Jesus. Jesus. The risen Savior. If Christ is not raised, we are not saved. There's so much doctrine in that. But focusing on that phrase, the purpose of God in His generation. Why am I here? He saved me into good works prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. I need to run with endurance that race that's set before me. We all do. This is what he's called for us to do. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, thank you for all that you do. Absolutely all that you do. You you bring your plans about uh, in time and over time, over the span of centuries. You have plans within plans. You have shadows and types and fulfillments. You have uh, prophecies as uttered and then their fulfillments. It's just a beautiful thing to see all your plan come together. I do thank you for this hour. I thank you for the big picture that we're getting. Chapter by chapter, by chapter. But it's a good reminder, Father, that there's a whole lot of meat we're missing in this format. That we got to go back later and fill in the details. When we get a a framework or a skeleton, and we get a a big picture concept, then we got to go back and put meat on those bones and and really flesh it out. So, Father, thank you for the blessings that we have to teach in a variety of formats, to uh, to study, to show ourselves approved in different settings. Thank you, Father, again for all that you've provided for, uh, for Austin Bible Church and other like-minded churches around this country. Father, we are lifting up Corpus Christi Bible Church and we're one week away now from uh, the vote uh, for Pastor Dan Craw and we lift that up. And Father, call upon your faithfulness there. Let your will be made known, Father. Might in like-mindedness, might your son, your son, our Lord and Savior, be glorified. And in all these things, we thank you, Father, It's marvelous and wonderful. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.